Um, welcome all of you who are here this morning. For those of you who are here for the first time, I want to officially welcome you as uh, one of the pastors here, the senior pastor of Anchorage Grace Church. If you uh, are here for the first time or you haven't been here in a while, we'd love to publicly um, or privately uh, acknowledge your presence. Look in the bulletin. You'll see uh, a place where you can fill out a welcome guest card so we can get to know you a little bit more. Also, as you're looking in your bulletins, you might uh, notice a couple things that are going on in the life of our church. And I want to encourage you that, that these announcements here are opportunities to worship and involve yourselves in the lives of each other. One that I want to quickly mention is at the bottom left-hand corner of your bulletin. That is our church-wide adult progressive dinner. This progressive dinner is something I've heard we've done historically, and some people I've heard say, you know, it seems a little different to progress from one meal to the next, but it's a great way for you to get to know each other. And so we have a sign-up table in the back, and for new people and for people who've been here for a while to get to know each other, we want to continue to promote fellowship that way. See Beth Beveridge or Jamie Ferguson for details there. Also under men's ministry, we have a men's night out coming up and the Moms of Grace play group that's ongoing, Bible studies for you to be a part of. I just want to continue to, to put these things before you because we are a vineyard of relationships, but we do have sort of some programs and some trellis work that can enhance your relationships as a body. And I know as I'm going to be talking uh, shortly from James 1 about trials and difficulties that we all go through, that we need each other to bear each other's burdens, to persevere through. And so this is why I bring these up. Well, as a way for you to introduce yourself, again, each uh, week we like to stand. So let's stand together and turn around and say hi to each other for a few seconds in the Lord. And let's do that now. All right, let's return to our seats now for our time in God's Word and be turning to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we're going to be concluding our series on going through the storm, verses 1 through 12. This is part 3 to this section about persevering through trials. Very practical section, and I'm going to pick up with verse 5 and read through verse 12 to get us going. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." 
Let the, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Next week, next Sunday, is that meaningful to anybody in this room? I I know that we have the word of God and we have sort of serious things that we're about at all times as Christians, but... You know, just to take a little bit of a commercial break, I just want to highlight something that is an event in our country, right? It's called the Super Bowl. Is anybody going to plan on watching that? Let's just get a show of hands around the room. Yeah, a few of us, right? People who are Steelers fans, people who are Packers fans, you're planning to watch that. But there's a whole host of you that are going to watch that show just because, right? Just because it's on. Last year when the Saints... Uh, defeated the Colts in that Super Bowl. It was the greatest number of viewers that have ever watched a TV show at one time. It was 106 million people watched the Super Bowl. And I wanted to ask a question this morning. Why? Why? Why do we watch the Super Bowl? What, what's so great about that event? I wonder, is it the commercials? Really? <laughs> I mean, I I think probably for some it's that. Some of it's probably habit. It's just what our society's doing. But I want to go a little bit deeper and say that the reason I think people watch the Super Bowl is because it is known as America's game. And it's a game of, of intense agony. And it's in a game of intense victory to accomplish something that great at that scale of magnitude for a sport like football. It's overcoming intense adversity, is it not? And I think it's the story beneath the story that compels people to watch something like football and that ultimate game called the Super Bowl. It's the backstory that draws us in, isn't it? I mean, think about it. All of the the little preliminary stories that draw us in, whether we're Steelers or Packers fans or not, we're we're hearing about these stories. These opportunities for people to to have their their knee completely severed from their body and put back in and sewed in and and shot up with cortisone so they could survive that playoff game, right? And win and and then give their other knee for the sake of the cause, right? I mean, it's, it's the adversity. It's overcoming all kinds of personal problems and, and pain and suffering all the way back to Pee Wee League to be in this moment and win or lose. It's the backstory. Well, James chapter 1 is giving us as believers the spiritual backstory, the story beneath the story to draw us into persevering through intense adversity. James 1 is opening up what's happening or what is supposed to be happening in our hearts while the pressure of life is put onto our shoulders. Life's trials, they come our way, they're unexpected, they're variegated, they're multicolored, they're multifaceted. We don't know when they're coming, but we know that they're coming. And each of you are suffering through something, I'm sure, 
And James 1 gives us some insight to know sort of what's happening behind the scenes. How Christ is being formed in our hearts and lives through the midst of difficult suffering. Christ in us, the hope and glory. James 1 verse 2. We're to count it joy. Why? Because when we have these various trials, we know that something is being produced in us. And verse 3 says, steadfastness is what's being produced in us. In other words, as we bear up under weight and pressure... Christ's strength and muscle is being built in us. It's steadfastness. It's the ability to go on. And we're to let steadfastness have this perfect effect that we'd be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, all the character issues that we have are being surfaced and rising to the top for us to deal with and acknowledge and have rounded out as we are going through difficult times. Verse 5 introduces the first promise in this section. And this first promise is, in essence, the promise that God will give you wisdom to be able to see, by faith, the backstory. The thing that's going on behind the scenes in the hearts of our our lives as we are suffering. That's what this section is all about. There are two promises here. One is in verse 5, we're going to get wisdom if we ask for it. And then in verse 12, if we complete our journey and make it all the way to the end and cross the finish line, we're promised the eternal crown of life. Eternal life. And so we have a wisdom promise or a spiritual promise that's On this end of eternity. And then in verse 12 we have the eternal promise that we will receive the crown of life. And so these are backstory promises that help us to persevere. We need these to get through. And we do. We do. Wisdom. There are some conditions for wisdom. And we talked about this last week. We're going to get a running start again into our third condition. But the first condition is seeing God as generous. Look at verse 5. If you lack wisdom, which is Holy Spirit generated wisdom to, a, to believe what God has promised is happening in our lives. If we lack this insight, then we need to ask God and Understand that God is generous. We need to see God as this God who wants to lavish us with the gift of wisdom. And secondly, we need to see self as empty, verses 6 through 8. And then thirdly, we need to see the world as temporary. These are conditions like setting a plant up in the sunlight and giving it water and plant food so that it will grow. These are the conditions for the promise to be enacted and energized in our lives. And you know what? These believers, these early church believers, they needed these promises desperately. Again, they were Jewish Christians, early church believers in the first century. They had, as Jews, turned from their heritage to embrace the Messiah. Now, they were connecting the old covenant teaching with the fulfillment in Christ, but they were having to relinquish trusting in in their religion to embrace the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And a lot of their family members were unwilling to do that. So they were kicked out of Palestine, kicked out of their homes. Their inheritances were cut off. They were not moneyed anymore. And so they were poor. Uh, Acts 11 uh, gives us a pretty clear insight that there was a famine in the land, something that Agabus had prophesied. So there was all kinds of poverty amongst the church at this time. They were poor and they were needy and they were in need of this kind of encouragement. And so this 
early church leader James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, stands up and writes the first letter in the New Testament church, and it's called the Epistle of James. James, this man who had mocked Jesus to his face along with his other brothers, John chapter 7 says, go to the Feast of Tabernacles, show yourself Jesus, show yourself if you're the real thing. And then 1 Corinthians 15 rounds out the testimony story because when Jesus appeared to Peter, the 12, the 500, and then to James after the resurrection, they believed. They, they fully embraced that Jesus was Lord and the Messiah. All the haze and fog cleared and James believed and became an early church leader. Obviously, things that he had learned in the past reconnected and, and sort of uploaded in his life so that he became known, as Galatians says, Galatians 2, 9, as one of the early pillars of the church, probably alongside the apostle Peter and Paul. The 12 tribes of Israel is where this church was was reflecting on and connected to. And now they were the New Testament church, just like Old Testament Israel, who had been cast into Babylonian captivity. Now you have the New Testament church that was part of the diaspora and spread out by the wind all over the place. And they were needing leadership. They were needing these promises. They were needing to, as we said last time, to gain God's perspective that God's working all things together for the good in their lives, and then to keep God's perspective or maintain that perspective and persevere through. But verse 5, as we said last week, gives us some handles for how to gain a Godward perspective and maintain that through suffering. Because some of you are suffering, right? I mean, as your pastor, one of your pastors, I just have to go there and just reflect upon the fact that you as a body are collectively one, but individually suffering in ways that you only know about or your close circle of friends know about. And these promises are for you. These promises go all the way back to the earliest setting of the church and carry forward to you in your life where you're seated today. You need to embrace the backstory of what God is doing in your life. He's working a trial in your life and causing you to persevere through to round you out so that you will be more and more like Jesus. That's what he's doing. All right. Well, to see this backstory, verse 5 says, if we lack wisdom, we have to ask a generous God. I believe that this is calling us to bow before our Father and to acknowledge, God, you are my Heavenly Father and you are generous. The word generous means that God is ready to lavish this promise upon you if you will only embrace it. Hebrews chapter 11 uh, picks right up on this promise. Hebrews 11 being the faith chapter, verse 6, it says, Without faith it's impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must, here's that conditional activating word, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You say, my life is dry. I, I want that promise, but it's not happening. I don't, I don't feel the backstory. I don't, I don't really believe it. If you were to corner me and really press, I, I, I struggle. Well, do you believe that God is generous and will reward you if you go to him? That's what the Bible is saying here. That's what James is saying as well in James 1. 
God wants to give you this blessing without mental reservation. He's waiting to bless you and to show you that he's working in your life. That is a promise. Wisdom is not some mystical thing that we're trying to grasp out in the ethereal realm. It's the word of God promised in your life. You see? Number two, we need to see ourselves as empty. That's verses six through eight. Let him ask in faith without doubting. If you doubt, you're going to be like someone who's tossed to and fro back and forth on the wind and the waves. If you're doubting, you're like a double-minded man. John Bunyan said, it's like a person who's Mr. Facing both ways. You're trying to look in two directions at the same time. Is that ever your experience? Is your heart ever going in two directions at the same time? You say most of the time, right? Most of the time. Well, James 1 says, for you to experience this promise, you've got to be single focused on Christ. We're not perfect, but we're striving to be focused on the Lord to get us through. It's like the man in Mark chapter 9, verses 19 through 24, we talked about last week. He had the son who was frothing at the mouth, who was trying to kill himself. He was demonized and demonically oppressed and influenced. He was tossing himself into the fire to be killed or tossing himself into the water to be drowned. Uh, I got a sense of this when my little Owen, who's just under two, grabbed the hot coil on the Gen Air stove and blistered his hand. It's healing finely, but it's healing fine. However, those kinds of, of, of freak out moments are what this man was experiencing as his father of this son his whole life. And so he went in full, you know, just desperation to the apostles and said, can you please heal this, heal my son or have this demon come out? And they couldn't do it. And so we went to Christ and he said, Lord Jesus, I, your apostles were unable to pray this demon out. And Jesus said, oh, faithless generation. And sort of rebuked the crowd and rebuked his disciples. And then the father said, if you can do anything, will you do it? And Jesus said, if, if you can, all things are possible with God. And so the man responded, realizing that he had been diagnosed as being double-minded in that moment, and said, I believe, help my unbelief. That's all God is asking for us to do, to be real with him and say, I believe, I'm trying to rest in you, I'm trying to trust you, Help my unbelief. Make up the difference in my life by your grace and help me to believe the backstory about what you're doing in my life so that I can grow through the trial. Help my unbelief. That's how this promise comes to life in your life, in your situation. We come to the third condition for this promise to be activated in your life. It's seeing the world as temporary. Seeing the world as temporary. This is verses 9 through 11. And what James does here is he approaches things as he is wont to do throughout his whole epistle in a very real life kind of way. And he's identifying two social classes and saying there are some of you who are poor and some of you who are rich. The poor people are those who are identified as the lowly brother in verse 9 and the rich are those as identified as rich people. Now, poor is not to be um, misunderstood as someone who is just, you know, struggling in their current job situation or is trying to figure out how they're going to pay their next bill. Poor in the first century is someone who was crushed 
in the socioeconomic environment, someone who would be a beggar, someone who would be like a person who had been displaced a year ago in the nation of Haiti, where at the Port-au-Prince there was that massive earthquake. Remember it? It was just a year ago. Well, there are parks where 50,000 people who have been displaced commune together and survive together under their own man-made shelters in 90-degree or hotter heat. They're surviving. And as a matter of fact, I heard from a pastor, a report that I watched online last night, that there are many who are coming to faith in Christ. And actually 50,000 people gathered for a memorial church gospel service a few weeks ago. People coming through the narrow door, but they're poor. They're, They're driven out of their present circumstances to be placed into a, a, beggared, a beggarly situation, socially. They were crushed. And then the rich, on the other hand here, are those who we might call the middle class, people who, who basically know where their next meal is coming from, where you have some money in the bank, you have some security. We're not talking about Donald Trump rich. We're talking about people who are basically generally what we experience from day to day in Anchorage or in America. People who who have cars, people who have running water, people who have enough things that you could actually trust in those things rather than trusting in Christ. That's a rich person. I mean, there are, there's a scale in terms of wealth here, but that's what James is talking about. A wealthy person who could fall prey into being double-minded. Someone who could serve God and mammon at the same time or think that they could, right? Jesus says that's impossible. It's impossible to serve both. But when you have something, you could serve that and bow to it instead of bowing to Christ preeminently. Now, some people would say, look, Jesus here, or James here, is talking about the lowly brother being the believer and the rich person in verse 10 being the unbeliever. This is kind of a riddle, in essence, to try to figure out. The lowly brother is the one who is to boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And it's the idea that James would be rebuking the rich person here. But I actually take both categories in this context as believers, where you have a humbled person who's poor, and you have a rich person who needs to humble himself. That's how I read this section. In the book of James, James chapter 2, for instance, James rebukes the rich person pretty severely. If you look at verse 5, it says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you, speaking to rich people who were oppressive at that time, you have dishonored the poor man and are not rich and are are not the rich, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court. So at that point, he's rebuking the rich person, saying that they're arrogant people. If you look at James 5, verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Now, James is very direct regarding the rich in those passages, people who are unbelievers and oppressing the poor in the church. But here, early on in the letter, I don't think James is doing that. And I'll tell you why. Because Christianity 
is a heart religion. And whether you have much or you have little, the issue is whether or not your focus is on Christ. Amen? Paul, he said at the end of Philippians 4, the secret of being content was whether I had a lot or I had a little. Whether I was, you know, had a bank account where I could help supply some money to Onesimus, giving some money towards him being reinstated at the church at Philemon or not. Remember he said, put that on my account. He had money, he had resources. But then he was also imprisoned. And the secret of being content was focusing on Christ in a single focus way. Not being a divided man or a double minded person. And that's what Paul uh, James is getting at here. The lowly brother must boast in his exaltation. Let's start with the lowly brother first. A person who is humble. A person who basically only can boast in Christ. His options to trust in material wealth or a bank account are stripped away. Judy and I, we were talking about how you see people sometimes who are homeless, who who have nothing. And that is completely normal to them because they've accepted it. We used to live in Southern California in L.A. And I remember driving by one time with Judy and seeing two people converse on a mattress as if they were in their master bedroom talking on their bed at home. They were used to it. They had accepted their situation. Many times, hymns have been written by the oppressed, by poor people, have they not? It comes out of a situation, out of a heart, where someone only can trust in God and his promises, and they don't have anything promised to them, and they're striving as a day laborer to to feed themselves, living hand to mouth as they work each day. And I think that's a version of being a Christian in this situation. They were, they were hurting. They were like those who were oppressed and who were cast out of their comforts in Haiti, hurting. But what are they supposed to do? They're to boast in his exaltation. What does that mean? Isn't it wrong to boast as a Christian? Well, here, it's not wrong. If you turn over to to James chapter 4 and look at verse 16. It says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. Boasting there is sin. But for the believer in James 1, boasting is a redemptive thing. It's where you see your future heavenly reward that's waiting for you. It's where you see your inheritance over against your present difficult circumstances. And even if we have things as middle or lower class or upper class people, we still need to boast in this way. Boasting, that word is used by the Apostle Paul 36 times in the New Testament and most often it's negatively used. But in this sense, it's used as an opportunity for our hearts to exult in God. And I'll tell you what. Whether we're poor or not, we can learn from the poor person, right? And see everything we have as as something that really is meaningless compared to having Christ in the gospel, right? We need to learn a lesson from people who are needy. Matthew 6 talks about this, not worrying about the next day because each day has enough trouble for its own, right? We need to live within the moment, day to day, trusting God in a new way, no matter what we have. Well, let's move on. Verse 9 the, or 10, the rich... In his humiliation. Another reason why I believe this is a rich brother in Christ is 
because the verses flow one to the other. You could say in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast and then immediately insert brother into verse 10 by saying, and the rich brother, even though it's not there, it could be assumed the rich brother in his humiliation. He's dealing with two Christians in two different circumstances that need to respond in different ways, but in a Christian way, that's the religion of the heart. The rich brother needs to humble himself, in other words. He needs to not trust in what he has earned. You know, the whole story of the Bible is one where poor people have been redeemed. But here is where the rich person must be humble. There are so many snares. There's so many ways that you can be ensnared when you have things that you can trust in in this life. Isn't that true? If you turn over to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, there are so many examples of this, but 1 Timothy chapter 6 is a very clear one where Paul is telling Timothy how he should minister to rich people within the church. Verse 17, it says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in what? Good works, to be generous and ready to share. Why do we make more money? We should make more money to supply our family's needs, to help our children, to help our parents, and to give money away. To share with those in need. To promote good works. That's why we earn money. And that's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. Not to be haughty, but to give our money away. It's not money that's evil, as 1 Timothy 6.10 says. It's the love of money. That's the root of all sorts of evil. It's putting money or mammon or wealth above God. And isn't it so easy to do that? It is. Just ask yourself, when you see something break that you loved preciously and your heart breaks with that thing, whether or not you're loving money more than God, right? Or when somebody who you've loaned something to that you really believe they're going to give it back and they never do, and your heart kind of, it kind of simmers over that. That kind of idolatry is loving money rather than the Lord. You just give it away. You just give things away for the sake of Christ. Over and over again, the Bible has talked about how God cares. Going back to the poor, he cares for the poor though. And I just wanted to hit upon this. In the book of Exodus, the whole theme is talking about how the nation of Israel is redeemed or bought back out from under Pharaoh. And in Psalm 1, it says that God is the father to the fatherless and the protector of the widow. 37, 11, he's the meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus in Matthew 5, blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. Those who are impoverished in their spirit and probably alludes to poverty in the world as well. Psalm 40, verse 17, the Lord takes thought of the poor. He's thinking of poor people and, and how God, he redeems them and raises them up. When I was thinking of 1 Samuel 2 and the story of Hannah and how Hannah as a mother was so desperate to have a child, right? Right? Remember that? There was the other wife under Elkanah, 
and she was having all the children and she was becoming pregnant and Hannah wasn't. And she was so sad and so struggling that she made a vow to the Lord that if she became impregnated that she would wean that child and give that child into priestly service. And so she ultimately did and the Lord blessed her and opened her womb and she gave and dedicated that child under the prophet Eli or the priest Eli into service. And she prayed this though regarding the poor to show God's sovereign control that God raises up the poor from the dust, the needy from the ash heap to make them sit as princes to inherit a seat of honor. You know, to some degree, no matter whether or not we have much or little, God has raised you up from the ash heap, has he not? We were poor and begging in our sin, and God has filled us with the riches of Jesus Christ. This is all part of the redemptive story, to think in terms of poorness and being wealthy. Mary, when she was exalting the Lord because she knew that she was carrying the Savior, she also took a a big picture um, approach when she prayed and said, The Lord brings down the mighty from thrones and exalts the humble those who are of a humble state. And then in 2 Corinthians, you might turn over here, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the ultimate picture of poverty and wealth is found in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, watch this, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see that? Everything comes down to the fact that Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, was willing to become poor for our sakes. To relinquish rights and yet remain God, yet become a man so that he could die in your place. To redeem us. There's nothing wrong with having money in this life. Abraham was wealthy. Noah was wealthy. Job was the wealthiest man on the earth and lost everything and was given that back. David and Solomon's wealth. Solomon's wealth impressed the queen of Sheba. Remember that? Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament gave up his grave to Christ and you had to be wealthy to have your own tomb back then. But ultimately, the heart of every Christian should be having a heart of humiliation, right? We cannot trust in what we have. We must trust in Christ as our wealth, as the ultimate wealth, as our security. And these idols are hard to fight off, especially in our American culture. We have so much, and it's so important for us to continue to humble ourselves, to be like a rich person who would debase himself in humiliation. Why? Look at verse 10. Why do you humble yourself as a wealthy person? Because it's all going to die off one day. And these stages are lined out in verses 10 and 11 as sort of episodes of it going away. Our wealth goes away like a flower of the grass. He will pass away for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is a rebuke on people who are trusting in wealth because this is a rich man who's pursuing wealth. That's his life's passion at the end of verse 11, it says. 
And that kind of person will pass away like a flower that gets burned up and wilts in a day. And James here, having been a Jew and being around Palestine, would see the gorgeous wildflowers, just like in Anchorage, that just bloom and blossom seemingly overnight with just an array of color that's, you know, unparalleled beauty. Jesus himself said, consider the lilies of the field and how that beauty outstrips the beauty and wealth of Solomon's temple, right? I mean, this is, this is in, intense beauty that's splashed all around creation from flowers that in a moment burns up. The scorching heat here in verse 11 could be translated scorching wind. Uh, many of your translations might say that. And that's a reference to the southeast winds that come from the desert of Arabia and sweep through Palestine in a four-day period. It's called the Shiraco wind. And that wind and blazing sun destroys all vegetation in that time period, in that brief time period. And that's what James is talking about. He's saying, look, if you trust in riches, don't, because it's all going to be swept away. It's very similar to where Jesus rebuked the man who had stored up all of his wealth in storehouses and said, no, today your life is coming into account. So you were a fool to have these kinds of reserves here on earth instead of having a heart that's investing in heaven. That's what James is talking about here. He's saying, look, it's all going to burn up. The hot winds are going to come along and melt your wealth away. It's like Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 that says, wealth will suddenly sprout wings and fly away from you. Have you ever experienced that before? 1 Peter 1, 24, it says that all flesh is grass. And that's a direct parallel to this. And then also Isaiah 47 and 8 is where James is picking up from. I remember one time when I had, uh, early in my pastorate, you know, sort of was, was, was trying to make ends meet, and we were trying to, you know, make our life work out and our budget work, and we kind of got ahead, and somebody was quick to say, this spiritual brother was quick to say, you know, even that money that you've gained is still the Lord's money, and he might have plans for it. <laughs> and he did. You just, you can't count on storing up money this side of eternity, because it can easily slip through our fingers. We can't trust our wealth. We have to trust the Lord. A reminder of this is ever-present in my my home. It's a, a couch that my kids love to play on. And it's a couch that my wife actually bought for me for my birthday several years ago. Um, I'd say several, maybe five or six. And I was uh, sitting across from my wife and she was presenting to me my birthday present. And it came in a little box that was one of those uh, boxes that, you, that your checks come in from the bank. And I unwrapped it and lifted up the lid of the box. And all of a sudden, these stacks of $1 bills and $5 bills and maybe $10 bills rose up you know, in a spring action. And I realized that there was about $1,200, $1,200 there that she had squirreled away over a year's time for me. I mean, that enough is enough to make you cry, just thinking about a wife who's piecemealing money away with me in mind for my birthday. But it was all dedicated to this couch because I always wanted us to actually buy a new couch. That was my dream, right? Before I had six kids, I wanted a new, a brand new couch, right? You see where this is going. I, I liked the leather ones. We had this orange couch that was donated to us. And, 
It's actually kind of funny. This was the couch. Um, many of you might remember that Ron actually drove down um, to or flew down to Little Rock, Arkansas, to move us. And he was moving us. And we actually left that couch in the house. And we didn't take that orange thing with us, you know. I actually called him as he had packed the truck and was driving down the road and said, you forgot the couch. And he went, oh, no. Anyway, it was a joke. Kind of a bad joke, right? This couch, this orange couch, we wanted it to be replaced. I was trying to justify that, you know, it's a throwback from the 70s. It just didn't work. It, it, it just wasn't happening. And so we bought this leather couch, and, and, and then we had twins that jumped on the couch quite a bit. And, and basically, in the move from Little Rock to here, it, it got a little crack in it. And then the dryness kind of, of the, the atmosphere took over. And that couch began over a year's time to shred. And holes suddenly were forming in this couch. And, uh, you know, I won't mention any names, but um, his initials are Carson Kratz, who probably was responsible for some holes that were forming in our couch and rips. And suddenly that couch became known affectionately as the Alaskan duct tape couch. So we've covered this thing, and we still use it. But it's a picture of how things are in a state of atrophy. And we can't count on things to make us happy or to get us through difficult times. Well, that leads us to our second promise. The first promise gives us the backstory of what God is doing in our hearts as we persevere through trials. He's building spiritual muscle in our lives. He's calling us to seek God in wisdom. He's calling us to not trust in our wealth, but to humble ourselves and be lowly before him to get us through. And then in verse 12, he gives the second promise, which is the eternal promise to receive the crown of life. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Stop there. We're blessed. One day when we stand before Jesus Christ and we're in the throne room and he says to us, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's a blessing. That's, that's deeper blessing than just kind of a, a, a superficial happiness. This is the deep resounding joy where we have placed all of our marbles in this basket. I mean, this is for everything. This is, uh, our whole life comes down to that moment. We want the well done, good and faithful servant affirmation. That's what verse 12 is talking about. That kind of blessing. It's what we need to know. It's, it's. What we are foreshadowing now where we can say we consider it all joy when we suffer because we will have that ultimate joy moment exploding in our hearts where we are affirmed by our Father in heaven. It's it's for those who remain steadfast. And that picks up on my first point here. God promises the crown of life for people who possess two character qualities. The first character quality is that you are authentic, that you're the real thing. When the pressure came on in your life, you didn't navigate through the storm perfectly, but you stuck with it. You didn't make shipwreck of your faith. You weren't Demas at the end of Paul's life in prison when he said in 2 Timothy 4, Demas has left me pursuing the pleasures of this present world. You're not that. You're not a Demas. You're a person who's navigating through the storm in an undivided devotion to Christ where you're pulled through to the end and ultimately affirmed in the ultimate graduation. The word steadfast is the same word used in verses 3 and 4. Tupamone, you remained under the pressure. 
And you stood the test, verse 12 says, and then you received the crown of life. What's the crown of life? Crown here is the word Stephanos. It's where the word, um, the name Stephen comes from. It is a laurel wreath that you um, are crowned with at the end of a marathon race. It would have picked up on the Greco-Roman games, the Olympic games where people were crowned. It's kind of the gold medal at the end of the race. Uh, the, it's different than sort of a royal crown. This is a crown of affirmation. And it's basically, in essence, a symbol of eternal life. Trials are what lead us to want and long for eternal life. The harder it gets this end of glory, the more sweet eternal life tastes. There are many pictures of crowns in Scripture. Proverbs 16, 31 talks about the crown of splendor that is the gray hair of a person who ages in this life. Isaiah 61, 3 talks about the crown of beauty, which is uh, the headdress of, of prophecy, speaking of the Messiah who's to come. And Isaiah 62 talks about the crown of splendor, which is for Israel as a nation. Um, those who believe will, will receive eternal life with Jesus Christ. All of these things are foreshadowing pictures of eternal life. The crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4.8. That's what Paul said he earned by fighting the good fight of faith, by enduring to the end. His last will and testament is saying, I'm going to receive the crown of righteousness. What does that mean? That means he's clothed in the righteousness of Christ and gets heaven. The crown of glory, 1 Peter 5, 4. The unfaded crown of glory. The unfading crown of glory which won't go away. That's eternal life. So again, in verse 12, we have the crown of life. Now, I bring all of that up to say there are a lot of people, especially in the last decade, who in the Christian church have lived for sort of earning crowns. Like, okay, I did this duty or, or that, and I read in this book of theology that that means I received this crown or that crown. I mean, there are people who joke about that and say, you know, I don't want affirmation here on this side of eternity for something I've done because I don't want to lose a jewel in my crown or something like that. It's really not the way the Bible talks about crowns. Crowns are talking about finishing the race and going into heaven. 1 Corinthians 3, though, does talk about a variation of reward that we will receive one day, but I'm not really concerned about getting my reward or getting a higher reward. I just want to get in, right? That's all we want. I mean, it does talk about how our hay, wood, and stubble is going to be burned as we're approaching the Lord and, and how if we invest in heavenly things, that's gold and silver and precious stones, that we're going to be affirmed. But all I want is in. That's how I've always been. Back to grade school, I just wanted to pass tests. And ultimately, I, if you know my testimony, I kind of surfed my way through 10th and 11th grade. So my GPA was just, it's an unmentionable, but... But I got saved my senior year and made B's again. It's all right. But, but all that to say, I was just glad to graduate. They called my name and I was through. And then I went to college and I did a little bit better. But it still's not something I'm going to talk about. And then I went to seminary and I did a little bit better. And my GPA got better. And then I went to one more program and it got better. But you know what? I never forgot from whence I came. I'm just glad to graduate. That's how it is. And in heaven... When we stand before the Lord, we just want to be told, well done. We don't want to be told, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. You were a sham. You were faking it, and you faked yourself out. 
You thought that prophesying in Jesus' name, you thought that interacting on, on spiritual warfare, you thought that doing this or doing that was going to get you in. You never knew me. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The scariest words in all of the Bible. But instead, we want this affirmation. Which brings me to the second character quality and the essential one that gets us to that moment. And it is this. First, we're authentic. And really what authenticates us is that we loved God. We loved God. Love is the driving force for perseverance in the Christian life. Not crowns, not living for a crown, not living for a reward. It's God. You know what heaven is about? God. John Piper, he wrote a book with the title, To Shock Us, to think about. It's called God is the Gospel. You know what that means? The good news about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is we get God. We get God. That's what it's all about. Heaven's about God. And so this end of of things where we are on this side of eternity, we should want and love God through the trial. And that's the foretaste of heaven. That's what draws us to the finish line is we get God. Romans 8, 28. All things are working together for the good for those who what? Love God. That's the theme of being a Christian is you're a God lover. 1 John chapter 5, it says that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome because this is the love of God. It's what drives us. We love him supremely. It's what draws us through the storm. We're called to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not just live for some kind of reward. The reward is God. The crown of life is eternal life with God. You know, I was sort of thinking through my own heart motives and trying to clarify this, thinking about marrying my wife. She's the one I love um, more than anyone else except God. She gets second place, and that's where your spouse should be, just under your love for God. But there is a challenge when you are single sometimes where you want to be married so desperately that you begin to love the idea of marriage more than loving a person that's a life partner for life. And so your commitment becomes sort of divided and messed up. And people live for marriage rather than living for a spouse that they're going to be committed to. And I knew that I was on the right track pursuing Judy because I wanted her more than I wanted just the idea of being married. And this sort of played out in a story. It was right before I became engaged to her. And this was kind of almost a pre-engagement move for me. I mean, you know, I, I, was, I think I was in with Judy, but I needed to seal the deal. I really did. And I didn't want to, you know, things to not go well. And so I thought very long and hard in terms of a good birthday gift because I knew this was leading up to engagement. And so I, I thought, you know, all right, she's an English literature major. She likes to read stuff that I don't read or never will read. But I need to enjoy and you know, get into that with her. And so I, I called her family and had remembered in upstate New York that they had talked about this book that she was interested in from childhood. And it was a very expensive old book. And it was, it was a, a large gray picture book. Um, with Milton, John Milton's Paradise Lost written in it. And so it was written in the 1800s, a very old book, and, and beautifully illustrated by ink prints that were the etchings of, uh, of the scenes in Paradise Lost 
um, done by Gustave Doré. So it was a very beautiful book. And my mother-in-law had alluded to the fact that Judy, as a 15 or 16-year-old, would go into Geppetto's, you know, sort of back, you know, bookstore workshop. You know, it was kind of a failed joke right there. But just this old, dusty, you know, you get it, uh, sort of, um, bookstore, and she would go into the back room and pull this off the shelf and just look at it, you know, hour upon hour. And, and so I uh, got my future uh, in-laws to go to that store, which was not open. It wasn't, you know, part of the season to be open, but they found the owner, had it opened, and bought that book and shipped it to me. And I paid them, and I, you know, got the book, and I put it in a box and took Judy to this restaurant called The Odyssey in Southern California, overlooking you know, millions of lights in Southern California on this hillside scene. And we're sitting there in this outdoor restaurant and I'm ready to do this thing. And I knew this was a big deal moment. And so I I had gotten this giant box to throw her off and and put in it this neon orange surfer t-shirt over top of of the book. And so, so she opened, opened it up and, and there it is, you know, this quicksilver orange shirt. And she's just kind of looking at me inquisitively, probably rethinking the whole thing in that moment, (laughs) truth be told. And then underneath was the book and it was a hit. It was a, it was a win moment. And I got, you know, some misty eyes out of Judy at that moment. And I knew that when the eyes went moist, I was in, but I did all of that not because I'm naturally a romantic. I, I, I'm not wired that way, right? I'm just not. I, but, but, it, but it was happening. And why were those things happening? Because I wanted her, I wanted her more than just being married. I wanted her. So I wanted to enter in to her. And so, and so verse 12 is saying the same thing for us with God. We, we love God. And that's what draws us to him to do things that we wouldn't normally do. And ultimately to be there with him forever in eternity because we love him. You know, there's one who loved us and endured the ultimate storm on our behalf. And I sort of want to wrap up with these points of application. What Jesus did for you through his storm. Number one, he endured the trial of spiritual warfare. He faced the devil. He faced the demons. He faced ultimate incredible temptations from Satan that were thrown at him for him to become arrogant. Not that Jesus could have fallen to these temptations, but he experienced them to the uttermost in his humanity on your behalf. He didn't throw himself from the temple. He didn't bow before Satan, but navigated through that. He faced demons, Matthew four twenty four says as well. Number two, he endured the trial of poverty. He didn't have a place to lay his head. Foxes and birds have places to go. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but Jesus had no place to lay his head. And he, he was made poor on your behalf. And we talked about that verse. I mean, number three, Jesus endured the trial of verbal abuse. I looked up these passages, Matthew 20 and Matthew 27. Jesus was mocked. They twisted together a crown of thorns, thorns which that is mockery. They crowned Jesus in shame. And then put a robe on his back, put a sort of a scepter in his hand, some reeds twisted together and bowed down and said, Hail, King of the Jews. He was mocked on your behalf. You ever been mocked? He was the ultimate picture of being mocked. Number four, he endured the trial of excruciating physical suffering. On your behalf, he was whipped. His back was shredded. He was pierced through. And again, the crown of thorns... 
Matthew 27 and John 19 talk about this. The crown of thorns that was driven down into his head was placed there so that we could one day receive the crown of life. So his crown of suffering meant for you and me eternal life, the ultimate crown. Isaiah 53 summarizes all of this. This is what Randy alluded to in the waters of baptism. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. I believe that was Jesus. He was so um, refashioned and, and grotesque on the cross that people were hiding their faces from looking at him. He was esteemed not. He was carrying our griefs and sorrows and stricken and smitten and afflicted and wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. You know, you, not, you might not feel healed today in your trial. Your storm might seem like it's crushing you, like you can't get through. But you need to understand that your backstory is alive. And God will give you the promise in your life to see it. That by Jesus' stripes, you're healed right now. And then ultimately, the second promise, you need to see that now as well. You are going to receive the crown of life. Where the affirmation that you were healed on this end of things is ultimately coming into fruition forever and ever. You were healed because Jesus navigated through the storm for you. He's the forerunner, and so we need to follow him all the way to eternity because we love him most of all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this practical passage in James 1, and we pray, God, that you would continue to draw us to yourself in love and praise and adoration as we navigate through our own storms. Lord, if there are any here who do not yet know you, I pray that you would draw them to yourself even today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up uh, as our final close and dismissal. Uh, We have some, again, continued opportunity for you to fellowship. We like to have a table set up in the back with food and coffee and things. Be sure to avail yourselves of that and continue the fellowship. And the, the worship of God comes through relationships, and I'm trying to foster that. Also, uh, in your bulletins, you'll see that we have a progressive dinner that's, that's coming uh, next month. And there's a table in the back. If you want to be a part of that, I would encourage these things, these venues for fellowship. Look over the bulletin for ways to be plugged in and involved. If you need a membership application or any need over there, we have uh, Pastor Ron Wood is standing by the information table to receive you. And I'll be up front if you have any spiritual needs whatsoever. Have a wonderful week and go in grace and peace. Take care.